Actually, I did start with InterVarsity at DBC. Now my wife there. I graduated from Cal and was with, involved with uh, InterVarsity in Hawaii for eight years and then came back and did a couple of youth ministry stints and then for 15 years had been at Trinity Evangelical Free Church there in El Cerrito. How many of you are familiar with Trinity? Actually, it's your grandparent church. I didn't know if you knew that. <laughs> Trinity pretty much planted bunches of churches around here. But uh, our uh, Trinity's kind of struggling at this time. Uh, we had a, a friendly uh, separation, and I'm moving on to some other things. So you can be praying for them as they think about where to go next. You know, the question of how we present ourselves as Christians here in this culture, hearing about Jeremy and the fact that they... Jeremy boldly said to see 2,000 men praying and know that they are lost. That's just not very popular to say that in this culture, is it at all? To say anybody is devout but lost and clueless, not very popular. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture, John 8. You've been going through John and want you to take note of the fact that in this, pa this passage we're going to see that Jesus moves from an interaction that's kind of friendly and it gets to the point of a reaction that's very negative. Knowing that Jesus is our leader, we're going to see that uh, we can't expect different. We could hope for it. And in fact, this past week, just the news of this last week, tells us how difficult, difficult it is to be a Christian here in this culture. The Supreme Court's ruling on same-sex marriage, is just the most recent event that indicates that even though we're supposed to be a Christian nation, as followers of Jesus, we are going to face opposition. It may not be physical, but it's definitely, definitely uh, opinions and uh, it affects in other ways. Now, as far as opposition is concerned, we don't want to welcome it upon ourselves, do we? I mean, none of us want to pick a fight with people. And uh, there's a couple of things we want to avoid. We want to avoid being misunderstood as Christians. Uh, we want to avoid that sort of being belligerent. And I want to take note, here, here's not what we want to do. Ah, uh, yes, not, not know how to use the technology. There it is. We don't want, as the Simpsons have kind of um, lambasted, you know, this is the image that some people have of Christians. And we as Christians don't really do this. We don't like to be misunderstood in this fashion, that we go out and we just hate everybody and do crazy things like this. Um, this also is not the approach that we want to adopt. And as Christians in California, we certainly know this doesn't work. I have spoken on Sproul Plaza at Cal Berkeley before, and we didn't take that approach. Uh, we did kind of a Jeopardy game thing, and it was fun, and we tried to engage people. And you know that as you talk to your friends. They don't appreciate this sort of approach, um, much less this approach. <laughs> you know, Concord Bible, some people may even construe from your name that you are Bible bangers. Just, just want to be mad at them. And I know that is not your spirit. That is not your spirit. Yet we may have experienced that kind of misunderstanding. So we want to avoid belligerence, but we also want to avoid just being strange, strange and weird. You know, <laughs> I've got a message here. Uh, this is the preacher for this Sunday. You know how many are going to show up. Um, with our friends, we don't want to be belligerent and oppositional, nor do we want to be weird. 
It just doesn't fly with our friends. I remember as a kid, my father has a loud, booming voice. Anytime you're in any room, the person you hear the most is my dad. So I remember as a young kid, we would go out to Chinese food. Remember the day when Chinese food was, Chinese restaurants were the only ones that were open on Sundays? Because they weren't Christians. Well, that's changed. But anyway, my father used to take us out to restaurants, and whenever he would pray over the food, there was the cringe factor we had to deal with, as, as my brother and I. My dad was so loud, everybody in the restaurant not only heard that we were praying, but heard every request in the prayer over the meal. You know, that kind of weirdness, I developed a desire to avoid. Um, so as we progress as Christians in this culture, we want to avoid those things. And we're going to see some model, a model of how Jesus approached opposition, how he steered clear of being belligerent, just for belligerent's sake, and he steered clear of being weird, for being weird's sake, nonetheless, people opposed him. And we can expect no less. For our background from this text, Jesus has just had in chapter, in the early parts of this chapter 8, um, a radical conversion to, his, to himself but on the part of many Jews at this time. And we're told in this verse, uh, as we pick it up in verse 31, that many had come to follow him and believe in him. Now you just think of yourself as the PR man for Jesus at this point. Here we have a good number of responses to Jesus. And you would think, let's preserve this. Let's keep this going with some momentum. Let's not make any false steps here, Jesus. Don't want to offend these folks or be too strange. Let's keep this movement going. As they've now put their faith in Jesus. And I want us to take note of what Jesus does do as he's had these many that have come to him in belief and uh, see if these are the sorts of things you would do if you were Jesus' PR man. So let's pick it up at verse 31. I have the text on the screen and if you have it in front of you in your Bible, you can follow along. This is the New International Version. And we'll just read a little at a time and I'll make some comments and then we'll read a little bit more as we make our way through this text. In some of the texts, I just want you to know I'm going to slow down for a bit. In other portions, we'll speed it up. So, picking up at verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him. Now, remember, there was a good number of them. Here's what he says. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, really my followers. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. First wash impression is, you don't want to raise the bar when people have said, I'm in. You welcome them. You say, hey, this is great. But, you know, Jesus raises the bar. He says, if you, want, if, you, if you really want to be around me, if you want to hang on, uh, be around me, you want to hold to my teaching, and then you will really be my disciple. What is a disciple, ultimately? It's one who is following the teaching and the example of another. And then there is an oft-quoted verse here, verse 32. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, academic institutions all over this land love to quote that. You just see it uh, carved on uh, granite in various places. And this is the mindset of academia. 
of colleges and universities across this land. If you know the truth, then you'll be free. In other words, the path to freedom, the path to true freedom is intellectual. You just get the right facts in your head and then you'll have freedom. You'll have a good income. You'll live in the right place. You'll impress people with your intelligence. You'll be able to navigate, navigate your career and so on. And this is not exactly what Jesus has in mind when he says this. He's not talking about intellectual truth here. It's, it's not just grasped in that fashion. And you know, I tutor children and even high school and college students. I do some tutoring on the side. I've been doing that ever since I was a pastor. Every once in a while, I just have a 2T. A, a and the mindset of these kids' parents is, if I get my kids knowing the stuff from their school, scoring well on the SAT, getting into a good college, they will be happy. All will be good. We will be free, you know, so to speak. The path is the intellect. Um, you know, and that's not, that's not the case for all folks in our society. Some feel instead that the path to freedom is, is, is frankly your feelings. If it feels good, then do it. And, and that's an okay thing. Or the path to freedom is what the group seems to say, what society seems to agree to. The path to freedom is uh, what our culture is saying is the definition of marriage, of happiness, of what a good life is about, and so on. But what Jesus is saying here is that truth comes from a willing heart. If you hold to my teachings, you're really my disciple. Then you will know the truth. In other words, when we submit to Jesus and to his teaching, we are on the track to truth. So do you sense what he's saying? He's saying truth is an issue not of the mind, but of the heart and will. The way to, you can get to truth faster, someone has said, you can get to truth faster by being willing to respond to it than just doing a bunch of study. And we've seen that in the last chapter. In John 7, 17, Jesus said, if you are willing to do my will, what did he end with? Then you will know that I am from the Father. How do you know who Jesus is? He is saying, your willingness is how you discern. Now, there are good reasons to believe Jesus is who he says he is. There's good reasons to say he died on the cross and rose again. There's good reasons to believe the wonderful claims he's made for himself throughout John, all these I am statements that you've, you've seen and you will see as you continue through John. But the point is, that willingness of heart is how we come to apprehend truth. This is very different from what our culture construes. So, a couple of implications for us. Just a couple of applications for those of us that are followers of Jesus. First of all, if you want to know truth, we need to be willing to follow it. And secondly, if you want to know truth, be a follower of Jesus. So the implications for us are don't be overconfident in your ability to convince other people of the truth of Jesus. It's not because it's not true, but it's something more than just 
are lining up all the logical arguments in a row. I remember many years ago, as I alluded to my time being on Sproul Plaza, I've spoken on Sproul Plaza. You know, over at UC Berkeley, it's those steps where the free speech movement had uh, gained ascendancy and some momentum there. And I, I've had the opportunity to speak on Sproul Plaza legally. <laughs> you know, groups can sponsor individuals to come and speak. And as I was a student at the time, I spoke there on Sproul Plaza. And I have to tell you, I misapprehended this whole th thought. I didn't get this. At the time, I thought, if I just convince people of the facts of Jesus, break out my evidence that demands a verdict, or my Lee Strobel books, or whatever it is, the case for Christ, if I just had that and explained it well enough, with enough enthusiasm, the light bulb would go on. You know, I didn't grasp it. I didn't understand this point that Jesus is making. That truth is apprehended because of a willing heart. A willing heart. And it's not that our willing heart makes up the truth, but that ushers us into the entryway so that we can come through the doors of, the, of truth. So let's move on to the next little section here. They answered him. <laughs> they take offense at what he said here. They answer him, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Notice he had said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. So they don't focus on what I just referenced. The whole issue for them isn't how can we know the truth? How can we be better followers of Jesus? It's all about, wait a second. You said something that's kind of a slur. You called us slaves. You implied that we are not free. Now, here, catch the irony here. Catch the irony. Any of you that know Jewish history, <laughs> they've been slaves lots. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, and before all that, who were they slaves to? The Egyptians. I mean, what happened to their brains? They are illustrating the truth sets you free when your heart is willing. Their lack of willingness of heart to submit to Jesus fogs their brains. They don't get their own history here. And they've got to stand up and say, wait a second, we've never been slaves. And we all know that this is goofy. So the illustration is right here. Immediately we see that this disconnect between a willing heart and grasping knowledge accurately, it fogs their ability to even affirm the truth. So what is Jesus saying? If you want to know the truth, be willing to follow it. How do you get in good with God? It's obviously not your pedigree. It's not who you were born into, what family you were born into, what community you live in, whether it's Danville or Concord or San Pablo or Richmond or, you know, more elite places. Um, it doesn't matter where you live, who you were born with, what your associations are, what your experience in life, where you went to college, etc. That doesn't matter. It's not what you've wrought, what you've bought, what you've caught, or what you have taught. It's who you know. And isn't that what we often say? It's, it's who you know. That's how you get the job. But with Jesus, it's who you know. It's who you know. 
You know him because you're willing to respond to him. And then we go on. Jesus goes on to illustrate some more and explain more about this whole slavery issue. He replies, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So he takes the question from the political arena of who you've been, what, what nations have been over which other nations, what peoples have been in actual slavery or otherwise, and it's now on a very personal and moral and behavioral level. He's saying if, you are a uh, if everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family. Notice the illustration here. The, the, the implication is that to, to know Jesus is to somehow to be included in a family and to be liberated from the slavery of sin. And it goes on. But a son belongs to it forever. A son or a daughter belongs to the family. Not like an a, a slave that just sort of works around the house and has no privileges, but rather a son or daughter belongs to the family forever. So if the son, capital S, did you catch that? We're talking here now about Jesus. If he sets you free, you are free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. So he acknowledges their actual lineage. I know you're an Abraham's descendants. You're, you're ready to kill me. These are civil people ready to kill somebody who's just having a civil discussion with them. Because you have no room for my word, their hearts have led them to this level. And so the interaction is now becoming a reaction. You have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence. And you do what you have heard from your Father. Wow, Jesus, come on. I'm your PR man. Do not say these kinds of things. You're going to make people mad. <laughs> you know, when you say you are in the Father's presence and they're in some other Father's presence, not a good thing. And of course, what is he talking about here? He's saying that they are a slave to sin because anyone who sins is enslaved by it. Notice he, he gives some, some, some points here about what it means to be involved in sin. And frankly, all of us, all of us, without Christ, without Jesus, are under the power of sin. Um, just as we sang together, sin's curse has lost its grip. On me. Remember singing that? And uh, he breaks the power of canceled sin. What hymn has that in it? We've sung that before. He breaks the power of canceled sin. But sin has an enslavement. It has a power over us. And there is a pollution of sin. You know, very often we as Christians focus on the pollution. You know, our sins are forgiven and the punishment. We're not going to be punished for our sin. Acknowledge it, friends. We are all still feeling the tug of sin, even though we are Christians. And that's why it's wonderful. He breaks the power of canceled sin. As we put our continuing trust in Christ, even as followers of Him, the pollution of sin, the punishment of sin, Someday the presence and power of sin will be broken. And that's what Jesus is claiming for himself here. 
So we have all sinned. And we're not just talking about the fact that we've done some bad things and we get forgiven. You know, sin ultimately, in this case, Jesus is calling the most religious, most Bible-believing, most devoted, most faithful, committed people on the face of the globe, sinners. These people at this time are the most devoted to their Bible reading and to their practice of their faith as they understood it, right from the Old Testament. And he's calling them sinners. Interestingly enough, friends, there is a sort of sinfulness that Jesus speaks of in the Gospels that is disarming and surprising. He criticizes the most religious people of his day. Not the people in the gutters or down pushing drugs in Richmond, not people who have messed up lives and so on. He's talking about those who show up in the temple or in the sanctuaries on, on the right days, Saturdays. And these are the people that Jesus is saying are enmeshed and entangled and enslaved by sin. And here's how that works. You might be asking, well, how can the religious people be the ones who are c criticized for being sinners? You see, the question is, who is your Savior? A religious person, even a Christian, can get to the point where they have basically saved themselves by their own behaviors. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, for, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. You see, that's the association Jesus is pointing out when he calls us all slaves to sin. There's this tendency to be good in our own strength, to be good in our own power, to be good so other people look at us and say, oh, there's a good person. To be good so we feel that we are good people. And we have become our own Savior in that moment. We have taken Jesus with a capital S Savior, removed Him, and we've made ourselves our own Savior. And a religious person is vulnerable to that. That's why Jeremy can say 2,000 men were praying earnestly, seeking God. I mean, how can you be critical of that? Because there is this heart's disposition, this habit of our heart, this enslavement to our own selves as our own saviors. He has to break that. That, that, that vision that we have of ourselves. So, and then what happens also is we set up in its place a Savior. We take Jesus down. We're our own Savior. And then we attach to ourselves idols. Little things that matter to us that make us feel good. It might be the idol of a, of a home. It might be an idol of a car, some possession, or an idol of an accomplishment. You know, like what we've wrought and taught and caught and so on. And this is the habit of the heart, friends, that we even as Christians can feel the tug of. To be our own Savior 
and to set up little idols. Little idols. That's why one of the small gospels, what is it, First John, says, Dear ones, keep yourselves from idols. It's Christians he's talking to. So I just want to broaden it a little bit to see that it's not just the kind of sin that we acknowledge when we come to Christ in faith, but even as believers, there are sins that are forgiven that yet still tug on our hearts. And I want us to see that. So sin is destructive in that it enslaves, it disconnects us from God. See, we're not in the right family, and, uh, and, and that's dangerous. Instead, verse 36 tells us where freedom comes from. Thank God for this. Thank God for this freedom. It comes from being under the teaching and the authority and the rule of Jesus. He's the boss. He's the boss. It's, ironically enough, if you were to go out and interview high school students and junior high students, maybe even some DVC students, just say, what is true freedom to you? Put a mic in front of them. What kind of answers do you think you'd get? Okay, no curfew. What other kind of things would, you know, young people say? True freedom. Bang. <laughs> Top ramen for life. Okay, no curfew. Top ramen for life. Doing whatever I want. I don't have to shower every day. Trey is, I don't know. <laughs> Fernando, you may want to move a little away from Trey there. <laughs> She's getting us in trouble. Well, you get the gist. Freedom, for most people, means the freedom to choose anything you want. The, the freedom to have um, lots of options and select among them. If freedom is walking into Safeway, you know. Wow. Freedom is that. But Jesus is defining freedom not as being able to go to any website you want, look at any image you want, earn any salary you want, have any gal you want or guy you want in your life. He's not defining freedom in these kinds of options, but rather, let me, let me get it right, it's not choosing what you want, but get this now, it's wanting to choose Jesus. Freedom isn't choosing what you want, but it's wanting to choose Jesus. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Freedom comes from wanting to choose Jesus. I mean, after all, think about it. It's logical. Jesus is the creator of everything. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. He's a source of eternal pleasures at his right hand. Jesus is the source of all this. Everything we could possibly want among the options, Jesus is the source. He's created those things. And so freedom ultimately is to be found in Christ and put our faith in Him. Um, it's kind of like, I, I don't know, the, the enslavement is that we don't naturally have that ability to choose what's good for us. It's kind of like little kids. You know, when you're trying to teach little kids, and some of them have a, a, a more difficult time than others. You know how you feed vegetables to children, and they taste that, and there's a couple of things going on with younger people. 
One is texture of vegetables. You know, they like it smooth and creamy, and, you know, they don't want any things in it. The other thing is children, frankly, till a certain age, are more acutely able to taste bitter elements in food. So, parents, sometimes when your kids say, ew, this tastes awful, it does taste awful <laughs> to them. To them. Now, fortunately, they grow out of it and get accustomed to it, and there are even some foods that we actually eat, I don't know why, we eat them because they are bitter. Now, what this is, is an illustration here. The child has not yet been given the freedom to choose what is good for that child. And it's that Jesus has to break into a life and give that willingness, that freedom. He has to do that, and that's what he's saying. If the Son sets you free, you will like vegetables. You will have a taste for what is good for you. You'll be free indeed. I like to talk about the conversion experience in three ways. You know, we often talk about how to share your faith with people. You know, there's different ways. But I like, you know, we, we, we use the sort of the formula, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Great. I kind of developed this three T's. We trust Him as our Lord and our Savior. We treasure Him. And I think very often that's left out. And then we thank Him. We trust Him, we treasure Him, and we thank Him. See, we can often trust Him for our past sins, but we want to also trust Him for future guidance as the Lord. And then treasure Him. You know, Jesus is a delight in the pages of John 8. John 8 is a PR statement of how wonderful Jesus is. He is a treasure to have. And if a heart hasn't treasured Jesus, I don't think a heart has comprehended Jesus. See, just to know that Jesus forgives sin and died on the cross, but a heart that hasn't been transformed into be passionate as we sing the songs that we sing on Sunday morning about the beauties and the glories and the majesty of who Christ is. We haven't had a heart changed. And we have to... Lord, give me a heart for Jesus. So it's all three. It's trusting Him. It's treasuring Him. And then thanking Him. Hard thing to do. Philippians 4 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition. That's good. We like to pray about all our problems. And then there's that, those two words, with thanksgiving. Lord, thank you that in spite of these problems and even through these problems, you're bringing blessing. You are good. And we trust you. So let's move on now. A big section. They get upset. Their feathers are ruffled. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus says, then you would do the things Abraham did. Remember? Abraham is the father of the faith. Galatians and Romans and Hebrews all cite Abraham as the, as the model of what it means to have saving faith. Um, as it is, you're determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Notice Jesus is raising the stakes. 
At first he refers to the Father in an intimate relation. In case you missed that, it's now God. I am intimate with God. I mean, he's either a psycho or he's telling the truth. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. We're not illegitimate children, they protested, instead of their hearts melting. Notice Jesus pushes harder because their hearts are hardening. He turns up the flame because the metal is getting more rigid. That's love. Take note. We're not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. I just want to note that. Resistance is getting greater. Jesus puts on more pressure. How different we often are, friends. Resistance gets greater. Oh, I guess you're right. And we sort of... I'm not, would that I was courageous enough and loving enough to push a little bit harder with friends that are somewhat resistant. I recognize I don't want to be rude. I don't want... If they say they don't want to hear it, they don't want to hear it. But if they keep talking, notice... They're talking. If somebody stops and says, I don't want to talk, that's fine. You know what the salesman trick is? If I, I used to do phone soliciting for pens. I think I did it for three days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, and you go through the yellow pages and you call up these businesses and say, how would you like your name monogrammed on some pens for your business? It's pretty much a no-brainer. They either say yes or no. If the price is right, it's a good deal. And you're just trying to catch them at the right time. I found this kind of hard to do. I don't know how many people are comfortable with sales and cold sales like that. I wasn't. But the one piece of advice that I received from the supervisor at the time was very interesting. He said, as long as they don't hang up, keep talking. As long as they keep talking at you, there's hope. I mean, it's almost like you're forcing them to be rude. But, you know, at your door, here's how it is. If you were doing door-to-door, -door, you know, you have the, the, the Mormons come by, and then you have the Jehovah's Witnesses come by, and then you have the, um, the solar energy people that are coming by, you know, and they're prompted, as long as they haven't closed the door, just keep chatting. And, you know, there's something to that. It's not just that you're being pushy. It is true that if people are willing to keep talking, then there's some engagement there. And notice, D Jesus doesn't chase after them. He said, we don't want to talk to you. We're leaving. Wait, come back here. He does not do that. They are engaging him. So this isn't a call to be weird and rude in some strange and bizarre way. It's rather, as long as somebody will engage you, keep talking about the faith with them. And once they say, don't want to talk, and they change the subject, then okay. So, hear what I'm saying with that. But Jesus is bold in that regard. He'd be a great pen salesman. He's terrific. <laughs> Moving on. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. He's putting it, the cookie on the bottom shelf now. For I came from God and now am here. I've not come on my own, but he sent me. Did you get that? 
Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. Remember? They don't have hearts that are willing. You belong to your father, in case you didn't know who I'm referring to, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he's a liar and the father's of, father of lies. Then he goes on. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? He's basically saying, you've got your father's DNA. You know, you're a chip off the old block. You behave just like your dad, the devil. You can't prove me of any sin. If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you don't hear me is that you do not belong to God. Jews answered him, and notice they get more and more belligerent in their reaction. Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan? That's a big cuss word. You know, that's a total put-down in that era. Remember the, the Good Samaritan story? Samaritan was a half-breed worshiping on the wrong hill toward the wrong God in the wrong way in the mind of a Jew. In the South, 50 years ago, be a black in the South 50 years ago. They're saying, you're a nigger to Jesus 50 years ago. And then they're saying, you're not only that, you're crazy. You should be in an institution. And Satan has got your heart. I'm not possessed by a demon, he says. I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself. That's always an indication that God is up to something. Remember, we like to be our own Savior. Here Jesus is saying, I'm not seeking glory for myself. Now, he's our Savior, of course. But it's pointing toward God, toward the source. And he's modeling that for us. There's no one who seeks it. And he is the ju there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Um, it's God the Father. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my words... Get this claim. He will never see death. Now, what is Jesus saying? He's not saying you won't physically die, but he's saying there's life after that. And the life we're now experiencing is more full and ultimate and meaningful. And it's purposeful. Then he goes on. At this, the Jews exclaimed, see the verbs now they're describing, exclaimed. First, it was sort of questioning. Uh, it was sort of inquiring, wondering, it was answering, then protesting. It's exclaim now and catch the next verb after this. Uh, now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Good question. And then we end with this. Jesus replied, if, my, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, then I'd be lying. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Wait a second, you're not yet 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth. And whenever Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, pay attention. He's about to say something really heavy. 
tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Two things you need to know about this statement. You probably know a good number of uh, you know this already. But Abraham, remember, lived thousands of years before Jesus. And he's saying, before Abraham was, I am. And he says it in the present tense. And he uses this very special way that God wanted to be referred to when he told Moses how to refer to him. He said, I am that I am. And frankly, the Gospel of John, many Bible teachers believe that these I am statements throughout John are signposts for us to discern these radical claims to being God that Jesus makes. But there's a couple of things that he's basically saying here. He's saying that he is God. And notice in verse 59 as we end this section, he doesn't say, now wait, you didn't understand this. They react by saying they pick up stones and stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple crowds or grounds. Now, why would they pick up stones to throw rocks at him? They were doing what the Bible told them to do. They were doing what the Bible told them to do. The Bible teaches to kill a prophet that is a false prophet. The Bible teaches very severe reaction to those who say bad things about God. They believe that Jesus has said the worst possible thing about God by saying that he is God himself. They did exactly what was right if they had it right, but they didn't have it right. And instead of picking up stones, uh, instead of kneeling and bowing to Jesus, they pick up stones and seek to kill him. And notice Jesus doesn't say, wait, let me explain. Uh, we didn't get this right. Uh, let's back up a little bit. Uh, this is an overreaction. I don't think you got... Let's look at the PowerPoint once more. No. So we see that Jesus moves from just an interaction with these people to a severe reaction on their parts. Let's just talk about some very quick takeaways, all right? Just in the, in the few minutes that we have. Very briefly, I want to suggest some takeaways for ourselves and for, our, for others that we interact with. First of all, for ourselves, what is Jesus saying? He is a source of truth. He is a source of freedom. Freedom from sin's power, sin's presence, sin's punishment, and sin's pollution, ultimately. And that if we belong to Jesus, we belong to God's forever family. We are in no matter what our family background is, it comes from knowing Jesus. And that life is ultimately found in trusting Jesus. Now, if that's for the first time for somebody in this room, or you haven't yet trusted Jesus with your life, somebody here, whoever you came with, or talk to me later, I'd be happy to explain that. And though, for those of us who are already followers of Jesus, here's the point. Jesus is your story. If you want to be able to represent Jesus in this culture, talk about Jesus. Talk about how he's changing your life. Can I admit to you a problem that I have as a pastor and have had? I think over the last 15 years, my sermons have been somewhat characterized by an openness about my own frailty and fallenness and brokenness and need for Jesus. All very true. Even though I'm forgiven, I'm aware of that. But I think I have downplayed talking about the good things that Jesus is doing in my life. 
the wonderful marriage I enjoy, the uh, th three daughters that are following Jesus, the provision he has made for my life, the dear friends that I have, the health that I enjoy, and the attitude I have toward him to want to learn. He's given me a soft heart. That's a gift. A desire to, to look toward him. So I want to just encourage you. Point to Jesus. When it comes to this culture and trying to represent him to this world, it's not how logical you are. It's not all the answers you come up with. It's your story of how he is working in your life in the ways that have been mentioned in John 8. And now let's talk about <clears throat> for other people. Some people will oppose us as followers of Jesus. The heat is turning up in this country, is it not? John and Irene Johnson have been in England for, what, 15 years now or something like that? I don't believe that they have had one convert. They have a lot of friends that they're moving along toward faith in Jesus. But that's how it is when you're dealing with Muslims. It's just tough. Now, it's tough here, too, and it's becoming more tough. It's going to become more and more unpopular to be a Christian. In fact, they may shut down the tax exemption for churches. Your giving to this church may have no tax advantages in the next 10 years. Pastors may not get any housing allowances. You may not be able to have the decision about whether or not, as a florist, my wife is a florist, she provides flowers for a gay couple or a non-gay couple. It's getting weird in this country. Now, where do we go with that? Friends, like Jesus, we need not fear opposition. No, we don't want to be weird. We don't want to welcome it, carry a Bible and have a little kid preaching on it. We don't want to be bizarre or belligerent and oppositional where we carry signs and say we hate this or despise that. No, we don't want to go there. But we need not fear opposition. We can't wimp out on this. We don't want to be those ways, but we cannot fear the opinions of others in opposition to us. And the antidote is to point to Jesus. He's the one that raised the stakes in John chapter 8. He's the one that didn't try to win over their favor. He's the one that said to these new believers, you've got to follow me. You've got to believe in me. You've got to obey me. He made it that way. And so I think that's our out, friends. We are followers of Jesus, and he's the one that has said these sorts of things. And if, frankly, he didn't, he'd be a liar, and he wouldn't be good. Because he'd be withholding from us the truth of how wonderful he is. So he needed to say these things. I'm reminded of a situation in communist Russia, um, you know, in the early days of many of our lives. Uh, Russia was under communism. I, I heard this true story of a, a, a group of Russian milita military men who broke into a, a meeting. And uh, in that meeting were some Christians that were trying to just have a little worship experience and hiding from the Russian authorities. And brandishing their weapons, these Russian men said, all right, those of you who are followers of Jesus, we want you to go over here on the right side. 
Those of you who are not followers of Jesus, go over here. Where would you go? People made their way wherever they made. Those of you on this side made leave. After they all filed out, doors were closed. They put their guns down and in t with tears said, You're our brothers and sisters. We're here to worship with you. You paid the cost, the price of what it means to follow Jesus. You're not afraid of opposition. We want to hang out with you folk and our, put our lot in with you. And friends, there may not be those situations in your present life, but it may come. And we need not welcome opposition, but friends, let's not be afraid of it. Because Jesus wasn't afraid of it. And if he toned it down, he would have been depriving us of how great and glorious he is. He had the courage to tell the truth of who he really is so that we can be drawn to him with responsive hearts. Not just because the facts all line up, but because he's given us a responsive heart. That's a wonderful thing to have that freedom in Christ. So let's not be afraid to speak up for who Jesus is in this culture. Don't want to be nasty. Don't want to be strange. But let's be accurate. Let's love people in that way. Amen? How about I pray for us and then whomever else is next can come. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you are the model and not only that, you are the source. The source of everything we need. We need life. And some of us here today are just feeling the difficulties of this life, Lord. Maybe we're feeling sickness, the threat of disease. And it's an encouragement to know that, Jesus, you have said that life comes through you and we need not, we need not have death be the ultimate, the ultimate end. Maybe some of us need hope or need connection to you. And Lord, Jesus, you have said that if the, if we are a part of you, that we are in the family. We are in the family, and we are loved by the Father. We're thankful for that connection and that hope. Or maybe we need some deliverance, Lord, some deliverance from vexing habits, and we've been trying to do it in our will, just turning over a new leaf or having another person ask us to be more accountable or just saying, I'm not going to do that again. And Lord, we are enslaved to our own sin and we need you to deliver us. We need you to send us people who will be an encouragement to us. And we need you to help us to treasure you in a new way. Not just having trusted you for salvation, but treasure you in the present. Lord, whatever we need this morning, whether it's deliverance or, or maybe we just need some hope for the future, some direction, Lord. The sun sets us free, we are free indeed, and, and we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. And Lord, we need the truth today, the kind of truth that gives us guidance for difficult circumstances and decisions we have. So wherever we are this morning, Lord, we need Jesus. We need Him more than we ever thought. We're thankful that He's available. It's in His name we pray. Amen.